And I'm Melissa. And together we want to welcome you to Still Great Bob. If this is your first time joining us, together we are watching AMC's Mad Men trying to answer the question, is it still great, Bob? This week we're discussing Season 3, Episode 9, We Small Hours, written by Davi Waller and Matthew Weiner, directed by Scott Hornbacher. This episode originally aired October 11th, 2009. Hit movies at the box office that weekend included opening at number one this weekend, Couples Retreat, at number two, last week's number one, Zombieland, at number three, last week's number two, Cloudy with a Chance of Meatballs, and opening on a whopping four screens at number 39 was An Education starring Carrie Mulligan. The hit song that weekend was, well... You probably guessed it. We still had a feeling by the Black Eyed Peas. And it's only one more week of that. So tune in next time for a new hit song. Thank God. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. This week on Mad Men. Betty thinks some things through. Don does not. And Connie shoots for the moon. Alternative summary. All men belong in a trash can or on the surface of the sun. I will not be taking in any questions. <laughs> <laughs> My only suggestion is forget the the or. Make it an and. Uh, yes. Okay. Sorry, Matt. It was so, nice yeah. on you. It, it's, it's fair enough and... You know, I will be getting in my trash can to be shot into the, the sun <laughs> after we finish recording. So I totally exceptions fair. are exceptions can be made. They have to be um, handwritten and signed, and I will co-sign <laughs> to stay on the surface <laughs> of the earth. Thank you. I appreciate that. Trash can optional. Okay. <laughs> so, where do you even start? <laughs> this episode made me mad. <laughs> This so is many ways. so many notes great, in Bob. all caps. So the way we have our notes set up, um, I we usually try to transition a little bit more smoothly than this, but it's it's hard because I don't really want to make light of the situation. So I'll just say, like, we're gonna talk about what happens to Sal first. Um, but what is kind of funny is the fact that they're at this commercial shoot and I'm pretty sure we've seen Pete smoke a bunch of cigarettes and it was fine, but he takes a drag of a cigarette and then hacks up a lung for like 45 minutes. <laughs> and it's so funny. And the second, the first time I watched it, I was like, what is happening right now? Like, it's not that serious when you switch cigarette brands. I mean, I know you don't want to, but like, it's fine. But then the second time I watched the episode, I'm like, is this just foreshadowing for how toxic Lee Gardner Jr. is and how shitty Lucky oh god pete my whole thing for him was just like he knows it's bad for him he shouldn't do it he's not gonna do it but everyone is just like the lightest of peer pressure and his need for validation is so strong he's just like yep gonna do it and then just coughing in the background it's amazing cannot hang and that never comes to any type of fruition like it's just there It's just a thing that happens. It's like the one lighthearted thing in this entire episode. <laughs> Sometimes you just need a little break and remember how much Pete sucks. And just like how Pete can't hang. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Pete. Um, and that's why he's not in the rest of the show. <laughs> <laughs> I just think that this like Sal plotline is like top two worst things that Mad Men has ever done. Like I... <sighs> I hate this. Like, fuck Don, fuck Roger, fuck Lee Gardner Jr. 
fuck the 60s <laughs> fuck homophobia like fuck workplace harassment like i could probably go on um yeah i can't even disagree with any of it so lee garner jr essentially propositions sal in the editing room and sal turns him down Lee gets drunk and goes behind the back of his account managers and asks Harry Crane, who I'm sure that he knows does not have a lot of control. So, like, he knew that he was putting Harry in a shitty situation when he did this. Asks him to fire Sal. Harry doesn't do it. It comes out in front of Roger. And then Roger fires Sal. And his, like, tough guy response to this is, like, Pete... Use your dying breath to delegate this task for me. Have John fix it. Yeah. I'm not going to do anything. All he does is just get mad and me be really terrible to everyone. So there goes Roger trying to be a, at least a decent coworker or colleague or superior or whatever. And uh, I'm really mad at Harry, too, because his... Okay, I will give Roger this. He was pretty right when he was like, your big, great decision is to do nothing and to tell no one. Mm-hmm. Cool. Like, and the way he tried to play it and how he talked to Lee earlier in the episode, it's all just a lot of kowtowing and trying really, really hard to be like, I don't want to I don't want to uh, disagree or uh, have any conflict with the client because they're the most important, blah, blah, blah. When he could have stood up for Sal or at least just done something other than the big fat nothing he did yeah like he could have called don right there and been like i have been put into a shitty situation like i need help nope nope just more in action and that's honestly just as bad i think as everyone else so fuck harry too yeah jerks <sighs> um i the thing is, we haven't really even addressed like Don's knowing about Sal since that. What was it in Baltimore? Yeah. And his mm-hmm. knowing there was always some sign of like not necessarily sympathy, but like an understanding of like you got your shit, I got mine. We don't have to discuss it, but it's not like a problem or anything. But then he gets here, and he's already in this place where I guess he's feeling insecure, and his fragile masculinity has been uh, insulted by Connie and everything. And obviously, we'll talk about that later. So he takes it out on Sal. He becomes this incredibly hard to like empathize human being. He's barely a human being when he spits those words like "you people" at Sal and. I hate him so much in that moment. I don't know about you guys, but he was terrible. No, no, I, I hate him. Um, this is supposed to be like our big hero, anti-hero guy. We're supposed to sympathize, and you know, even when he has his bad moments, we're supposed to be like, "Oh man!" I mean, it's totally understandable with what he's going through. No, there's nothing here that makes me want to feel bad for him in the least, or try to understand him, or any of it. Like, this is, Sal was like, what if I, like, what if I was, like, a girl in this situation? And Don is, says, it, de- it depends on what kind of girl and, like, what I know about her. And I'm like, so people only get to not be sexually assaulted in Don's world if they have a good reputation and you don't know anything about their private life? Like, please, please, fuck off. Yeah, especially considering what Don does later on. Hmm. And, like, is this supposed to be 
in 2011 when this aired, are we on Don's side? Like, is that what was supposed to be happening here? I cannot imagine. I mean, I can because look around us, but like for real? I think like in the 2009 context and even just like like watching it again now, like it it it's incredibly frustrating, period, full stop. But I think it's also a pretty good demonstration. And I, I would never say or classify like Don Draper as a quote ally because he's not. He's mm-hmm. focused on his own shit um, to the detriment of or not focused on his own shit to the detriment of, you know, himself and those around him. Um, that's kind of the whole show. Um But when it was I think it was back in the Baltimore stuff was back in season two, right? It was last season. Or was it this season? I don't remember now. Oh, I don't um, even know anymore. Yeah. Anyways, doesn't matter. Um, but during the kind of like the Baltimore stuff and the the reveal, Don is portrayed as like the oh, limit your exposure, and it is is like is more empathetic and and understanding as much as he can be um, in those moments. So the show definitely wants us on Don's side. Then we've talked a lot about how the show uses Roger to, you know, be the worst TM to then make Don, who's also slightly less worst, look a little bit better. But in this, we see kind of how how tenuous, you know, Don's air quotes. Again, he's not an actual ally, but allyship or understanding is limited to his own failings and everything else like that. Right. Cause Sal looks to him as being like more of a friend and like help, help me through this situation. And Don steps on his throat. And like, that's that I think is what makes it extra frustrating to me. Cause the situation would be disgusting and upsetting without it. But like on a, on a character level, we know that this the Don that Don is choosing to be in this interaction completely undercuts any of like the good feelings or like the, Oh, Don's complicated, but he's trying or not trying or whatever feelings that we have about him when he essentially snaps Sal's professional neck. Right. And I think it's that betrayal that like stings just that extra, like 25% on like a really egregious, feeling situation wholeheartedly agree he has on top of all that he has the audacity to like shake his hand and tell him he'll be fine as he sends him off and i wanted to punch him in the face that's not a helpful uh criticism to don as a person but it is what i feel and it is true yeah i mean i texted you guys when i watched this episode for the first time and was like i want to kick don into the sun (laughs) like that Poor puppy in the good place season one. Oh, God. Just straight up give him the boot. Because, I mean, Sal is like, really is a poor puppy in this situation. He has so little power. After being like cornered and bullied and sexually harassed. Like Sal is. Even if Sal was a fucking shitty person, he did not deserve what happened to him in Mm. this episode. But he's a good person. Like, he is, I feel confident at least saying, like, he's out here trying, which is more I can say for most of these men. Mm-hmm. On well, even yeah. the show to, like, 
build it up and build Dawn up as like giving Sal a chance to shift into a different field as advertising changes and like, you know, the pencil art drawings are kind of going out and it's commercials and to like empower Sal to be like, no, you can have this career as like a director of commercials and who knows what could could come of that right like even in 20 years later you have direct major film directors now that started in music videos like like who knows what what could have happened and so like don is encouraging sal and then it all the relationship doesn't matter when it when it comes to an account as big as lucky strike that could turn off their lights if they leave that, that it tells you how disposable the worker is to capitalism I just can't. Like, the fact that Don's like, they're a $25 million account. He is a fucking predator. Yep. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That's all anyone cares about is how much his account, his dad's account is worth. What a fucking piece of shit, all of them, except for Sal. Yeah. And I feel like this, sh- this show also just takes what I find to be a really cheap turn by having Sal like and I, I'm not holding it against Sal or, or shaming him or anything for needing comfort and turning to some you know being so desperate um, mm-hmm. but I hate the way that it auto- automatically turned into Sal's now going to lie his wife he's going to go to a particularly seedy part of the uh, park where it looks like gay men in leather and vests go to cruise which is fine that's where some people had to go um, because they had no other safe haven but i hate that it just i don't know it just so the whole portrayal of it just felt really seedy and cheap Mm -hmm. and did sal this beautiful human who has been put in terrible situations and who admittedly has played along with the whole toxic masculinity at the workplace to try to mask who he is inside i forgot where i was going with that sentence sorry but like i mean he certainly has his flaws but it just feels like it really undermined the person that the show had created for us and had made us love and sympathize for. And I didn't like that either. That is on the writers, though. Yeah, a hundred percent. Especially because, um, like, right after it happens, we see the scene of Sal, um, like, throwing some things in frustration, and you don't exactly know whether that's frustration from the situation or anger for the situation that he's been in or, like, fear for what's to come because of the situation. Or, I, I mean, it's possible that Sal is just frustrated because he couldn't have something that he wanted. Like, we don't exactly know how he feels about this. We just know that he was trying to do the right thing by his job, by his place of work, and by his wife. Um, so we don't really get to see, I mean, we see that he reacts with like anger, but we don't know where that's stemming from. And then we see him go, um, go to this park, like you said. So we don't even get, we don't even get like an understanding of the impact of this on Sal other than like, oh, look, now he's making like quote unquote, like bad choices. And it's like, I think that the show and maybe you disagree, but I think that you do agree based on what you said. Like, I think that the show is putting like um, a negative connotation on the behavior that Sal does after this. Um, when it's like, we should not be judging Sal. We should be giving him space to feel his feelings about the situation. And we should, as viewers, because we've spent time like loving Sal and wanting good things for him. Like we, we deserve the opportunity to see how he handles this like personally without judgment. 
can I make us more mad? And as someone like rewatching this, what really like upset me the most with, with the hindsight of, of having watched this episode a couple times. Oh, yeah, please really go. Why not? Um, this is the last we see of Sal ever on Mad Men. Mother Get the fuck out. Mm-hmm. I hate this show. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fair. I mean, that's not really true. I don't hate the show, and I understand that it was made at a time, and that's the point of our little experiment that we're doing here, but, like, that's extremely fucking frustrating. I hate it. <laughs> like, that's not great, Bob. Definitely not great. not great. No, and, and like, tropes exist, and, like, I don't think something being a trope is necessarily on its, on its face value inherently bad it's it's how you use it and what you do with mm-hmm. it and i remember i think it was when i was ending up like re-watching season three the the second time um and it's right around when i got into to downton abbey and there's a, a closeted character on downton abbey as well and it's just kind of interesting over time how and i don't think downton abbey is the best portrayal of of lots of different things to be honest it's it's kind of Follows more more often than not in um, the Ryan Murphy Hollywood, you know, this is how it should have been like instead of how it was like kind of category for me. But uh, it just feels very like 2000s to have a like closeted gay character that is destroyed by society. And like this totally I don't think this falls really into like there's a trope that's called like a burn your gaze trope where you introduce a a queer character basically with the purposes of then then killing them to get some kind of emotional payoff i don't think this is fully that burn your gaze trope but um it's it's close for me yeah no i completely agree because for all it just (sighs) It reduces Sal to something as little so disposable, which admittedly a lot of female characters that we see come in for just a season are also treated. Um, that's not to say it makes it okay. It just means that I have more to dislike. Because why would you make us love Sal only to do that to him to make us and ugh, because then it's just like some cheap ploy to get us to feel bad for him and then somehow just use it in context. And in the context that is Don, that is Sterling Cooper, that is um, Lucky Strikes, which is um, for some reason much more long lasting (laughs) a thing in Mad Men than Sal. Yeah, this is really shitty. (laughs) Like, it was already shitty, but knowing that this is, and I'm actually really glad you said that because if I, I mean, it would it would have been Greg all over if I had to sit here and wait for this to be resolved. <laughs> <laughs> oh God. Um I do want to point out that at some point uh in the conversation between Sal and Don, uh Sal actually does refer to Lee Jr. as a bully. So I mm-hmm. glean from that that not just was he trying to like look like straight guy married to his wife and all that stuff. I don't think he wanted it at all. I think he may probably have shown, been given a lot, uh, he may have been allowed a chance to show more that he actually wanted to reciprocate the advances made towards him, but it is, you know, 
a lot of it was exactly how you see the female characters get taken advantage of against mm-hmm. their will in the show where it's like they're in a professional they're in a professional uh situation and someone who thinks that he has more power in this case because he's the client with the 25 million dollar contract he can take whatever advantages and liberties that he wants and when someone says no it's not because they don't want it it's because oh i get it your work you're being professional what a piece of shit we don't like him and on top of that he has terrible taste (laughs) And, like, this is not at all, like, even top five of the most important takeaways from this plot line. But um, if, if, the, if the cancer stick tobacco company can shut your lights off because you're not selling cancer to people well enough, let's just reevaluate the whole fucking thing, shall we? Oh, my God. Okay. Okay. So, pour one out for Sal. I cannot... I can believe it, but I cannot believe that this is the last we see of Sal. When we get done recording this, I'm going to watch The Gold Violin. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Good episode. Yeah, remember them? (laughs) Good episodes. That has the cigarette. Like, yeah, yeah, it does. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. I mean, Don Draper has always been in that realm of like, problematic phase but he's just a problem now i'm not gonna lie like i do not like this motherfucker (laughs) (laughs) and i know that i'm very fickle when it comes to these men here on mad men especially don especially don but i'm gonna tell you right now i do not like him (laughs) i guess to just kind of set set the scene for our discussion a little bit um, on Don, we know that he's still working with Conrad Hilton. Conrad is calling every four hours to chat or have different ideas. And, you know, when you have a, a new baby who needs feeding every three hours, there's a, a not a lot of sleep happening for Don and, and Betty Draper at, at their house between work commitments and baby commitments and everything else. So Don decides he needs to go into work because Conrad Hilton says jump and he comes across Suzanne jogging. We know that Suzanne jogs because um, oh, what's Francine's husband named Carlton? Because Carlton mentions he's he's seen her jogging, if I recall correctly, is kind of a relatively new thing at this this point in history. So that's also <laughs> what? what? Like, yeah, like I, like it wasn't like super like popular like we think of it today too and even like um that's so funny <laughs> yeah no i mean i mean and and listeners if if i'm i'm wrong and misremembering please uh tweet at us or, or email us but uh, based on my reaction it wasn't like super popular until kind of like you know the the late 60s early 70s when it kind of became came a thing so suzanne is running thing. and don's all suited up driving into the office picks her up and offers to drive her home um as they are driving home the fi- kind of blocks there's a little bit of like a charged kind of back and forth but finally Suzanne says like no you can drive me the the last couple blocks to to my house when they're driving there's a news story on the radio it the, it's playing snippets of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. 
both the I Have a Dream speech, which was from the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom in August on August 28th, 1963, and then also Dr. King's eulogy for Addie Mae Collins, Cynthia Wesley, Carol Robertson, and Carol Denise McNair, four girls who were murdered by a KKK firebombing of the 16th Street Baptist Church in Birmingham, Alabama, which I believe the eulogy was given on, on September 15th of the same year. So the driving out of that's on the news. And that's what Don and Suzanne are talking about. Suzanne, Suzanne makes... What I think as a non-parent, admittedly, is an astute point that kids understand. They know what's on the news. They can see things like, you know, racial injustice and, you know, the the violence that that's surrounding that. And it's important to talk with them about it and not shield them from it under the guise of protecting them, which did remind me as a bit of a callback um, to when we had... Betty, Don, and Suzanne last school year when Sally hit the girl at the the water fountain after Grandpa Jean dies and we found out that that Sally didn't get to go to her, her grandpa's funeral. So it was a bit of a callback there. And I think we can dive in more to, you know, some of the other themes that are kind of inherent to that and what we've talked about with Mad Men before, but that kind of sets our scene for the path that that Don is on. <sighs> okay. This, this man is exhausts silly. me. But Go important ahead. to me. Mm-hmm. Um, Don is like so weird with her in the car. And he's like, what are you? And like, yeah. how did this happen? And I'm like, Don, you're so fucking weird. Stop. And then he's like, let's get coffee. I'm always late to work. It's coffee. But it's like, why would you be late to work if it's the middle of the night? <laughs> like, what? I'm confused. Um, so that is that was just silly. No, me. I don't think it was silly at all. I actually noted that same part too, where he's just like, "Are you dumb or are you pure? Who are you?" One, why are these your only options? Two, um, I think Matt, you made a point somewhere about it being like manic pixie dream girl. Mm. He's talking and like pondering her existence, and as if she's not sitting right next to her, it's got that weird stilted feeling of like dream. Uh, uh, Pygmalion sort of situation. Yeah. Um, As if she's not the most like mature woman that he's actually ever talked to. Yeah. And it's super weird and condescending almost. And it's just another, I thought it was just a quiet moment that perfectly encapsulated how Don objectifies women to be figures and secondary characters in his story. So I don't think it's silly at all. Like, yeah. Do you really think it's cute that you're always late to work? It's an affectation. <laughs> no, and, and like, I think there's obviously like, you know, a different kind of like age imbalance there. And I don't, I don't necessarily think that I believe that like Suzanne is, is immature. I think she's like, yeah, she's definitely like a young professional and isn't as, as established in, in her career as, as Dawn is. But where is I going with this? But like I think Don is is definitely trying to set the terms of the relationship and is clear on what he he's looking for and that and that's where he's like oh what are you are you you type one or are you type two and it, it's like him trying to say oh I think you're interesting I think you're one of these like it's it's kind of Tyrion Lannister's drinking game from season one of Game of Thrones like like with a different a different kind of like dressing on, on it too. Right. And like, she's 
previously, like with the Eclipse episode, with the Eclipse stuff, where she's like, oh, you're just like all these guys. And he's like, well, no, I'm not. And X, X all offended. And she's like, oh, well, maybe he's not. Like, he is. He's just like a more sophisticated version of it, right? So it's 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 frustrating but I, okay i remember what i was gonna say now he's trying to remove all agency she has in the situation away right mm-hmm. um where it's like if i can limit you to like the two female archetypes of being like the virgin or the whore i can remove any sort of complexity or agency that you have in your own life or our potential you know relationship fling whatever and then it's all in my turns and like to your point annie it's 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 exactly how he treats and views women right yeah it's terrible and i hate it this is not a hot take this is not a nuanced take it's terrible and i hate it i recognize Mm -hmm. that i could probably be more thoughtful or empathetic but i really don't want to be and i what is nuance for right now like this is terrible and we hate it yeah (laughs) i don't want to be i don't want nuance i don't want sympathy i don't want to understand don he takes every opportunity and chance that you give him like not just as a character in the show but like as the viewer and then he just like i'm gonna throw my food onto it and just stomp on it and like adding nuance to our dislike of don um is giving like sympathy and space to Don that I just don't think he deserves. Like if we're like, oh, we dislike Don because of like X, Y, Z, our own experience. It means that like there is something of us in the hatred and like, no, it's just because he sucks. Like mm-hmm. I could have had any life experience and I could still come to the conclusion that Don is trash. <laughs> and, I, yeah. and I think I think if we're like approaching the situation with any sort of like nuance and understanding it i am giving all of that to suzanne because Uh like Mm -hmm. again it's like if and i mean this is a probably a bit reductive but like whatever but it's like it's not her her fault that like don is married and like seeking her out and again she has agency she can she can choose to like enter a relationship with him or not and i think that that appears to be based on what we've seen so far what she's doing good bad and different whether that's a a positive choice for her or not she has the again i'm using this word a lot but the agency and power to to then make that choice it's not and i don't think that you know either of you feel feel any differently but it's like I think potentially this straw man that I'm creating that's watching the show, it's like, oh, well, Don's being bad. And it's like, oh, it's entrapment or like Suzanne shouldn't be doing that. Well, it's like, no, regardless of whether it's a positive downstream choice with consequences, Suzanne's an adult and can can choose to enter that. Right. And like, I do think Don is trying to like pigeonhole her in each of these these two modes that he's only capable of, of viewing women as. But like thinking about Suzanne reminded me a bit of amy elliott dunn and gone girl and mm. and there's mm-hmm. a quote there where she talks about you know nick dunn played by ben affleck in, in in the movie nick wanted cool girl so i gave him cool girl and like the whole like you know the whole like context of that being that like she was then playing a part for you know her husband or, or boyfriend at the time and then you know that evolved over the course of the movie and you know we can you know, watch Gone Girl if you haven't, and then you can have complex feelings and we can have nuanced conversation about it. But that's what it kind of like reminded me of. So I think, I guess to repeat this point with how I started it, any sort of grace and nuance and understanding of this dynamic, 
I will give heaps to Suzanne, whereas it's like Don gets none of it. Thank you. Mm. I hear yes, no, none for Don, zero for Don. Um, none for Gretchen Wieners. Uh, yes, exactly. <laughs> I I will diverge from where you go off though on Suzanne's own agency because I do think she does have some. I think. Be- there is a lot in the way I really enjoyed how much of a seemingly aware, well-spoken, um, firm way that she responds to Don and his many advances throughout the whole thing. That said, I think she is all because she is smart. She is aware it is hard to forget the fact that she is supposed to be younger and that she does not have um, the same level of status or power as Don, who is older, who is a larger man in her apartment in the middle of the night. He is uh, the father of one of her former students and future students, assuming she sticks around long enough to get Bobby. Um, So when she asserts her agency and she rebuffs him with her clever witticisms, or when he's driving long in the middle of the night, hoping to see her and literally and figuratively pick her up she is just not there that is her making the choice her constantly telling him like someone will see you you should go all those things is her putting her foot down and drawing her boundaries and every single time he crosses them he is essentially stalking her in but because he's cool he's got a fedora he's don draper he's got like however much uh, money coming into the bank every year because of his cool manhattan job at no no point does she ever actually express verbally certainly that she does want it she gives many reasons why this is a bad idea she makes herself physically unavailable she almost doesn't tell him where where she lives um i think that is her actually asserting it yeah she's telling him over and over and over him she's telling him the reasons when like he doesn't even like, you should just take no for an answer. You don't need the reasons why. Like, she's saying, like, I don't think you've done this this way. Like, we live two miles away from each other. We're going to see each other in the grocery store, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He literally says, I don't care. Yeah. Doesn't it matter to you that I don't care? I'm like, no. No. Like, I care. I'm telling you. I'm telling you the things. Yeah. So to say she has agency and can make a choice, she is trying to make a choice within the parameters that she has been given by society. Because quite frankly, if I was this tiny, cute Abigail Spencer, and here's this man who, again, larger, richer, more status, older, comes on to you like that, your your natural instinct, like, I mean, for I think a lot of women, when it comes to a man who is doing that to you, who is approaching to you and encroaching your space and denying every single instance you are making to say no without actually saying no, you are subconsciously aware that actually saying no could potentially put your safety at risk. Mm-hmm. So you never really do, which is a whole other Pandora's box of stuff. So, yeah, I mean, she's an adult technically, yes, but she is a one who does not have equity of power that Don does. And as we discussed, Don is not talking to her or addressing her or treating her or seeing her as an adult. That is another object to make him feel better because things are falling apart at work. Yeah. Like, I'm, I already mentioned this. I can't remember if we were recording or not at this point, but <laughs> I the just the Roger being like, I'm putting you on notice. You're in over your head. And Don's like, you know what I'm going to do about it? More fuckery. 
I'm going to make things more complicated for me. <laughs> I'm going to drag somebody else into this bullshit. Like, Don, what the fuck? Yeah. And again, Don has the audacity to judge Sal for whatever imagined, like, probably, like, homophobic idea of how gay people act behind closed doors when Sal literally says no and then, like, fires him for it. And then when Ab- uh, when Susan Farrell is basically saying no, fuck it, forget it. Betty is with a man who um, seems to actually want to know what she wants and manages to say no. But fucking Don. Betty freaking no. rules. Yes, Betty's great. Abigail Spencer, poor little precious thing. I don't Abigail want... Spencer freaking rules too. She does. She has not been given the opportunity to rule fully mm-hmm. on Mad Men. Yeah. Obviously, because John sees her as a fucking toy. Mm-hmm. There is a l- so much promise in her character, but I am finding that with all his other past affairs, I'm getting ki- really annoyed with this repetition of this woman is mouthy. She's real. She's this this brassy broad who doesn't take no shit from Don and it really interests him and he can open up to them. But at the same time, every single step of the way on the surface, they seem amazing. They're aware, intelligent, obviously beautiful, but the show really, again, undermines them and they become an object that just can't resist on. They become this like wilting flower that that's just like, oh, despite everything that I know, despite knowing better, this man, he's got his arms around me. I can't, ha- I can't help myself. Yes. And they, they're not – the show doesn't treat them as people sometimes, and it, I'm very frustrated by it. Yeah, like we're only in the third season. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. There's just – there's one character in particular, one female character in particular that I am – people were not fond of i don't really remember how i felt about her it must have been fairly apathetic but i'm really afraid of how the show is going to treat her and having to relitigate and remember how i looked at her Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so yeah you have that to look forward to melissa (laughs) um okay so before we move on from don we have to talk about connie obviously um (laughs) Connie, who also refers to Don as a dog at some point when Don is just this like, how do you know what, what, you know, when to do something that you want to do? Instinct. Yeah. Don is a dog and Connie knows Um, it. That really stuck up for me too. Like he's straight up like, AKA, you don't think before you do things? Like, bruh, you gotta be better. Um... But I'm not sure if that, that that's necessarily the show comment. I mean, I don't know. Like, like maybe it's like a like a meta commentary on Don. But I don't know if like mm. the show is that that aware. And like, if, like I think it's more about Connie insulting Don because like the real Conrad, the the historical Conrad Hilton, um, much like he's portrayed in this episode was a strict anti-communist and a, and a very strict and like devout catholic and and both of those pillars formed what was his his personal ideology right and like he's judging don and he's all like oh you don't have any pictures like we've seen this like 
before, like in the season two, when he's like in the office and stuff, and it's like, oh, you don't have any pictures of your family. You don't have this. And like when, when Connie's calling him on the phone, Connie's got his Bible on his desk. He's got his rosary there. He's like talking about prayer and Don's talking about instinct. Right. Um, so Connie believes in, in something higher and you know, it's, yes, it's, it's, it's God, but also it's capitalism and America and all of, all of those things. Yeah. A bunch of Connie's ideologies in this episode were making me feel a little cringy. Right. So like, I don't know if it's intended to be taken as this kind of meta, like he thinks Don's a dog or it's just like Don is not fully human and to be fully human you have to in connie's estimation embrace kind of these these pillars he talks a lot about you know what the mission is and like you know using this kind of this religiosity kind of his his catholic background and describing it to or you know it's it's kind of sui generis in, in that way it's, it's kind of a a mix or i just punched the mic um it's kind of a mixed in bag when like he's really ultimately talking about settler capitalism and colonialism he's talking about american manifest destiny being an updated version of how the sun never set on the british empire um and how the name changes and the song remains the same so it's like he's judging don but i don't know if he's judging don for the same ways that we're d- judging don mm-hmm. no i don't think so it was definitely 100 percent me <laughs> It's all me. I definitely just think Don's a dog. He is all instinct and it's all stupid. <laughs> just to be clear. <laughs> it was I me. definitely it definitely pinged for me where I'm like Connie sees straight through you and knows that you don't think before you act. And that's mm-hmm. like not Connie does not think that's cute. Yeah. And Connie's not like some shiny beacon of morality or anything, despite, you know, his own piety and whatever. But um I do think it's really interesting the way he does call Don out in a way that people often don't. And it does mm-hmm. shake Don. It's really fascinating. Um, so even though, you know, he's telling Don like, oh, you're you're like a son. You're more than like a son because they they still probably have that bond that connected them in the first place where they're at the bar. They're these two poor kids who just had this constant hunger that no matter how much how much success they had they haven't really been able to fulfill it. So it's just constantly driving them. And I think that still connects them. But there's something about Connie where he's become more discerning, not just about other people, but probably about himself that Don hasn't. Um, So when Connie sends everyone out of the conference room so that he could talk to Don in private and he's just like, look, I'm going to be honest with you, which I don't think people are anymore because uh, they're probably just scared. And you just see Don like flailing and getting so defensive. It's um, character wise, yeah, it's fascinating. Gives Don the old calm down. Yeah. <laughs> like character wise, it's fascinating on a personal level. I think it's delicious. <laughs> yeah. Um, the phone, the first phone call before we move too far away from it. Mm-hmm. Uh Connie's phone call wakes, well, maybe wakes the baby or it might just be a coincidence. But either way, Betty's up feeding the baby. Dawn's up feeding the Connie. <laughs> and yeah. Betty's like, says to the baby, um, I know what I want when I want it. And I don't care what it does to anybody else. And I just like, like that <laughs> moment of like meta writing where it's like, OK, ostensibly she obviously she means Connie. But like, it's Dawn. It's That's definitely Dawn. Dawn. That is Dawn. <laughs> it's fascinating. The whole thing. Connie tells Don 
you're my angel. You're like the sun. You're like a son, more than a son. And I find myself, per usual, getting my feelings hurt (laughs) on behalf of Connie's sons because it's like you don't like your sons because they didn't grow up poor, but like you did that. Like they did not have a chance for you to like them. I'm feeling, um, offended on their behalf (laughs) (laughs) i'm gonna go on a limb and say that uh hotel uh owners don't seem to be very good dads to their sons (laughs) yeah it's a pattern i'm noticing (laughs) they're not they're not great surrogate dads to you know whoever thinks that they might uh be receiving love from these people uh, (laughs) say no more say no more yeah all i could think of was just like another dad for Don to disappoint and be disappointed by Donald. Yeah, no, totally agree. That's ultimately what it's about. And I, and I, and I don't think Conrad Hilton even saying that, like, you're my angel. I think you're my, you're like a son to me. And like, I don't even know if Connie believes that. Like, I think there's a certain way in which some folks, um, will be colloquial or will like look for shared ag- agree experiences or will like commodify emotion like with a sort of like capital gain in the end right and like don probably was was buying into that for whatever reason right and then that's when he's like oh this is a great ad campaign but i wanted the moon that wasn't speaking figuratively i literally wanted shit about space and like that's why like like you know it, it it hurts Don, but like I don't know if Connie even meant that and it was more about building emotional capital with Don. Right? I have to assume that like you're right, because it's like Connie's obviously a decently smart businessman because he's Hilton, so like he's doing something correct and it's like, you really thought we were gonna advertise hotels on the moon, dude? No, you didn't. No, you didn't. It is nice, I guess, to see Don get fucking played. <laughs> and like, I guess before we kind of move off, though, and talk about kind of this this surrogate dad stuff and like disappointment, I did think there was an interesting contrast between how all this Connie and Don stuff plays out in in comparison to when we saw Don with Peggy and kind of Peggy's only seen this episode really miss, mm. missed uh, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Moss in this episode, but with Peggy, Kurt and Smitty when they're preparing the pitch for Hilton and Peggy's con- contribution was one of the tags that Don worked out when he was sleeping in his office. The, when he went in early, the first time he, he saw um, Suzanne and she's like, but this is your line. He's like, so come up with something better then. don't just repeat what I tell you. And, that's ultimately what Connie wanted. So like in a like little bit of a surrogate way, I think that's the show doing its thing. We were supposed to like Don a little bit because of, of X in contrast to Y. Mm. <laughs> no, this yeah. is bad dad begetting bad dad. He's such a dick in that, in that scene. And I hate him so much. He sp- does this whole, like, I can't, he literally says, I can't do this all by myself, bro. You're not even doing it. Your team is doing it. They're trying really hard. They're literally doing the notes that you tell them to do and trying to make it good and interesting. And you're not being helpful. And why would you yell at Betty so much about her talking about being on the Hilton account and then put her on the Hilton account anyway? What was the point of yelling at her? Like dog instinct. 
<laughs> yep. Yeah, I'm starting to think he's the dog who gets the car. Who, like, actually catches the car, you know? And they're like, like, oh, fuck. Now what? <laughs> Panic. Chaos. And on top of that, did you mention it? Because, sorry, my thing dropped out for a bit. But uh, Connie is also terrible because of his colonial mindset where he just wants to bring America to the world. That was awesome. Uh-huh. That was so... Yikes. That's super awesome. Just... That's being decided to colonize people. Yep. Yep. Super great. Super great. So we're definitely not idealizing Connie here, unlike Don. Yeah. And like in a different episode, like I would feel bad for Don by getting his like feelings hurt by his uh like Hilton daddy, but not mm. in this episode. Sorry about you. Mm-hmm. I just can't help but keep going back to the fact that, like, Matthew Weiner is one of the writers in these ep- of this episode, and mm-hmm. the conversations with Don and and Suzanne especially 100% make me th- think, yeah, this is probably a Weiner episode, because I didn't know before I watched it, and I hate it. It just doesn't make me feel good, guys. Yeah, and, and like, you have to, like, and seeing where, like, the other credited writer in the episode being Dabby Waller and like knowing what she's done since. And, and, and even as recently as, as last year show running kind of Mrs. America, which I think there are some lots of valid criticisms on, but is, is playing in a similar milieu to Mad Men a little bit, albeit, you know, a little bit later in, in history. Um, but some of that, I wonder if some of that complexity and nuance that is in Suzanne is what Daphne like injected into it, but ultimately it's still a Matthew Weiner show that's run by Matthew Weiner. So the idea of enthusiastic consent is something that appears to be incredibly foreign to Mad Men and a lot of the Matthew Weiner episodes in particular, um, and mm-hmm. Matthew Weiner in general. Um, it's so, not great. It's not yeah, great, but that's, that's definitely something that I think doesn't hold up for me or the show like when it comes out right and it's like mm-hmm. it's kind of like insidious in a way mm-hmm. in in which like we're so exposed to like some of these things again to like hard back to my point about like tropes and you know the idea of like eroding kind of you know defenses and like things like that where like there there are ways to like explicitly like do that trope that don't that are less problematic and I, I mad men to date hasn't been sophisticated enough or seemingly like interested enough to do that. And like, it's interesting cause it, it has been done better before, like even historically. And I mean, I don't know if we want to like cut this out cause it's kind of charged or whatever, but like, I think, baby it's cold outside does a better job of what i think Mad Men is is trying to do than Mad Men actually does right when you look at its own like historical context and kind of you know everything else like that right but mm-hmm. i mean feel feel free to disagree and again i don't know if we that might be one on the side we like cut out but like it's it's something that it, it it's more vitamin can be a blunt instrument when it comes to mm-hmm. even portraying consensual relationships it want us to read as 
consensual when they don't necessarily read that way right and when yeah yeah no it's just uh, another example of taking a character and undermining who she is for the sake of a story um and i don't it's not great and yeah especially and especially um they like to use this whole oh you're not like other girls thing as a way to draw you in make you think this time it'll be different uh but as she said maybe she's just the same thing all over again and i think like in context of all of this discussion it's been really great so so thanks to both of you but like i think that's why i'm so into betty and henry like despite ah. despite you know the the whole kind of emotional affair extra extra maritalness of it all it's like it's far from perfect because it's ultimately still Batman. um yeah but it is still an affair after all this stuff that donna has pulled like i just cannot be mad at betty for this like (laughs) i don't have it in me (laughs) yeah and there's something really simple and sweet and open about especially the second letter that betty writes to henry at least the second one that we get insight to that's really lovely and just kind of like a nice change of pace. It's got a little bit of weight to it, obviously, in baggage because of Betty's situation. But, like, speaking as someone who has engaged in a letter-writing correspondence with a gentleman suitor, because dating in this panorama is super weird, guys. Like, super <laughs> weird. Um, uh, I thought it was really nice. And I really, great. I really did love... Uh, there's a lot of stuff that um, Henry pulls in this episode that I did not react well to. <laughs> um, but what I did like was whenever he wrote her back and was like, you asked if anybody read my mail. Not anymore. I was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> you smooth still. <laughs> I mean, that man's pretty good. Um, yeah. And he he's pretty smooth because like when he stops by because one it is kind of like oh it's super overwhelming the way he just appears at her doorstep instead of just you writing back a letter roll up to people's houses and he like, he does know it he does say it and it's probably not super within his normal character but when Carla walks in and he just automatically has a story that he's so smooth even though in that same moment he looks like he's trying to like dive out the door even though Carla's already looking at him. <laughs> I had to watch that moment three times because I still couldn't figure out what he was trying to do because it did look like he was just trying to reach for the door and run out but then she's like nope I got a story. My face pull is going to act pull like. Pull the shoot. Pull the shoot. <laughs> I know exactly. But he's just like yeah no blah 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 fundraiser. Sounds like a good idea. Check you later. Um, Carla of course uh, sees right through it because the help always does. And like what the fuck does she care? She doesn't have time for your shit, Betty. Just don't mess with her paycheck. She just wants to go to work and do her thing and not get in any trouble or cause any drama or have to be the person to reveal secrets and go home and, I don't know, provide for her family or something. Just let her do this in peace, guys. Yeah, like, this is almost, like, worse because now she's drawn into this obvious farce. Mm-hmm. <laughs> And Betty mentioning Henry coming over, or quote unquote, that man uh, coming over, like, it's only, it seems like it's only because she's afraid Carla will say something, or she just wants to, like, really double down on it being an innocent thing to Carla. Because she's 
almost like it's suddenly she's suddenly aware that Carla is actually paying attention or may know things. Yeah, like Betty, get some chill. Jesus. Mm -hmm. This is why she has to ultimately decide not to have an affair. Gosh, I hope so. She just doesn't have any chill. (laughs) I like the idea that, yeah, that like she's paying attention to Carla and that's why she's just trying to behave. But Carla, either she just wants like not to get involved in any drama at her job or maybe she just actually wants a nice peaceful nice peaceful time for her kid for the kids that she takes care of but carla's got other things on her mind guys yeah she does um as you mentioned matt uh this is coinciding with the march in washington for jobs and freedom and also with the 16th um street baptist church in birmingham that was uh that was attacked and uh led to the deaths of four little girls i believe Mm-hmm. And it's something that's been threaded throughout the episode, which I found kind of um, heavy-handed at times. But uh, I don't know. What do you? How, how do you guys feel about this almost sudden attempt to flesh out Carla um, as a character, as much as any female character is fleshed out in the show? It just it feels like what we've talked about before where it's like look we are aware of real events we we're woke (laughs) look look what we put in our show we have had a whole black person on the show the entire time guys did you know that Mm -hmm. i know it just felt really for me, it felt really awkward that this is when they decided to bring her out of the spotlight when they're like, we also really wanted to feature Martin Luther King, guys. <laughs> it's like um, BIPOC characters can only exist in the context of white people in the same way that women can only exist in the char- in the context of men on this show. And it's, you know, I've expressed my feelings about this before. It's, it's exhausting. And I am curious to see, because I don't remember how, what they do with Carla from here on out yeah I agree I was just going to mention that Betty also says the thing about like maybe civil rights isn't supposed to happen right now and I just cannot for the life of me figure out why the fuck you put that in this episode oh my god I want to believe that was Matthew Weiner thing (laughs) (laughs) because it's so awkward and I hate it because it's really real. And that is a thing that mm-hmm. people still say nowadays, even though there's like four dead kids. Yeah. I'm like, for me, it it falls into kind of like a similar bucket to some of the stuff we were talking about on the top of the episode with Don, with the um, fickleness of Don's quotes, allyship, or like support of of sal and it's it's extra like frustrating in the context of again things not changing but just like the idea that like better isn't possible so we have to um titrate change or like prop up systems that have baked in structural and racial inequality just because like the time isn't right well if the time wasn't ever right for change change wouldn't happen I mean, it's just 
it's like frustrating and like it's it's much similar to like how when Don acts out, it's actually about something that's happen happening to him mm-hmm. and he feels out of control. So like, you know, he hurts others. Um, that could potentially be a little bit at play here with Betty, which again, isn't, isn't an excuse, but it, it's just like this, the stakes are literally life or death. Mm-hmm. And to like hear a character say that on the show or hear someone tweet something similar or say something similar like now it's it like makes me want to pull my hair out and scream Mm-hmm. And I'm going to stop mm-hmm. there before I do either of those things. <laughs> yeah. You no, can, this is... You can uh, probably hear my body, like, <laughs> curl up and die right now. Yeah, no, it's it's so... It's it's Betty coming from this incre- incredibly privileged place where to her, like, not being able to be with Henry is somehow equivalent to the struggles of an entire percentage of the population whose lives are at risk, whose livelihoods are at risk, whose ability to be treated like general human beings, uh, like everyone else, is at risk. And uh, it sucks because the whole episode, you're very, I think, sympathetic for her. And then they throw this at the end where you're like, cool. Uh, cool. I do, I did enjoy in kind of like a, a crying, laughing kind of way was at the fundraiser where Betty's friends are all talking about, you know, like, do you know how bad it must be for the Negroes to descend on Washington like that just to be heard? And segregation is just uncivilized. It's that simple. And I voted for Kennedy. I'll probably vote for him again. It just gave me really strong. I voted for Obama for a third term talk. Mm-hmm. And meanwhile, you can see Carla right in the background, you know, quietly head down, basically answering the door and, start, you know, being an invisible servant. It's like awesome, guys. Way to go. Cool. And even using like one of your only reoccurring or your one of one of your only well, not one of because I guess there's there's Sheila as well. We've seen a, a couple times. Um but using one of your only reoccurring black characters to basically be this kind of moral compass or like, like symbol more so than a character of like your own conscience watching you and like catching you in your affair. Like they're the eyes of Dr. TJ Eckelberg, that billboard in the great Gatsby. It's like (laughs) not great, Bob. Not great, Bob. No. Especially since I assume we're going to see very little of Carla unless we start talking about black things again. So low expectations here. Um, yeah. 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 Um, Back to Henry. <laughs> yeah, I guess the only thing left to talk about Betty is um, so this fundraiser, uh, Henry doesn't show up to it and Betty is pissed. <laughs> and I, I love that yeah. for her. Yes. <laughs> I love because at first it seems like petulant, like disappointment, and then she's just like throwing things, and it's great. And Henry's just kind of like, "Ooh, <laughs> okay, cool." She's like, "You made me feel stupid." Yeah, you showed up at my house, inappropriate, unannounced, and then you make a plan with me, and you don't even show up to it. Like, what are you doing, son? Yeah, and she looked amazing at the fundraiser. That dress looked great. It looked great Henry's on her, cool. and he didn't even show up. He sent some woman that she never met before. 
she deserved to be mad and it was I was here for it. January Jones is the best. She was amazing. Yeah. Um, so I was mad. <laughs> um with Henry's like well, for one, he told her to calm down, which like it's funny when Connie says it to Don. It is not funny when anybody says it to Betty. Yeah, not a great look. I will give you that one. Um, And then when he's like, I wanted you to come to me. You had to come to me. I'm like, you showed up at her house. Like, this feels like, I don't know if, like, I don't know if I just project this shit on everybody because <laughs> I need to spend more time with my therapist. But, like, this just feels like manipulation. Like, the same way I was mad that he knew he didn't have time to go on a hike. I'm mad that he was like, well, I needed you to come to me. And it's like, you showed up at my house. What do you mean? And if you wanted me to come to you, say it in a letter. Don't piss me off and bring me here in a rage. I don't think you're totally off base. I do think there are some things that Henry does in a way that aren't great. They could be, uh, what's the word, better? (laughs) They could be better. They could be clear and more front, even though he is, in general, more clear, more front, not as blinded like by emo- emotional misty rage that Don can be sometimes when something doesn't go his totally. way. Um, he could be more clear with his intentions, uh, although he did, again, drive to her home <laughs> as opposed to just writing a letter. Uh, but for me, it kind of read like he didn't want to be the one pursuing, constantly pers- pursuing her and putting her in a p- position where she has to acquiesce to him, especially considering her situation. Not unlike what Don was doing with Abigail, where he was constantly pursuing her and entrapping her. He had to know that she was make for me, it was her consenting to whatever this was, to making the choice of like, I'm going to step outside of my marriage and outside of the safe zone. And because I wanted that much because he already made his his um, his gesture, his display, his, you know, his statement of intent, I guess. But, like, um, isn't her agreeing to actually go through with having a fucking fundraiser at her house? Like, I mean, she said she had to. Uh, I mean, okay. because she got caught, right? I had to decide if I just want to be mad. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, the show has really set you up, especially this episode, to be mad at every single man. Right. <laughs> the fact that Henry's going to suddenly be the only one because he's not completely clean in this because, um, yeah, could have been a lot clearer because, um, you know, he wants her to be like to make her own statement of intent and, and be clear about it. Uh, but he never actually tells her that. <laughs> yeah, I think that's what frustrates me is that like she assumed that it's just like a miscommunication. So she assumed that. I guess my read is that she assumed that having the fundraiser was her statement of intent and that he was going to show up to it and they could like figure out the next steps from there. But Mm -hmm. he doesn't even tell her he's not coming. And so then he gets her all worked up. And then when she gets there, he acts like she's unreasonable. And Mm -hmm. I think that's what makes me mad. Valid. Valid. And like, I think that's very real. Totally fair. And, it, and it's like he he knows he fucked up by just showing up to the house like unannounced against his better judgment because 
he just acted on on impulse because they'd been old school texting, sending letters for for a while and just was like, I need to like see you now. Right. So he gave in to, you know, his feeling in the butterflies then got caught, felt shame about it. And then basically not and then punished because of his own shame. He ends up hurting Betty. Right. To kind of cover up for like you said his his own kind of shame or knowing that he made a mistake mm-hmm. and like what's interesting in that exchange um is he kind of like feels in a way like he tries to spin it like he's protecting her like oh people see us i still know it's a small town you need to come see me um but ultimately i think he, it's about protecting himself and then potentially even the governor Nelson Rockefeller from potential scandal if they get seen, you know, stepping out air quotes or or not, right? So I I think I think he believes it when he when he thinks that he's protecting both of them, but again, I think there are better ways he could have done it. Mhm. Like the way I'm looking at it cuz they both are like obviously attracted to each other. It's like he knows what he wants, but he has absolutely no control. And she is like all control and hasn't quite figured out exactly what she wants. Mm-hmm. So they haven't figured out each other's language in that sense. And I really wouldn't even be surprised if this is Betty also just not wanting to be done. Mm-hmm. That may or may not be actually it. That yeah. That may or may not actually be it. But it does also set up this really interesting and uh, ultimately frustrating comparison between Don and Betty because Don really, you know, all this shit doesn't really mean that. It, it isn't that important to Don. There is no stakes to him having an affair with this woman. A lot for for Suzanne Farrell, but he doesn't care about that. Uh but for 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 Betty and Henry, so much stakes and actual genuine what seems to be actual genuine connection and feelings for each other that they haven't quite figured out. So they're able to be like, we're going to step back. Basically, Don sucks. <laughs> that is my TED talk. Thank you for coming. Hmm. Yeah, cosine. <laughs> I'm mostly en- enjoying how... <laughs> Was it 12 years later, uh, revisiting the show? Friggin' Betty is my hero of the show, and Don is very much not. Pete still sucks, though. That has yeah, to say the same. He so, sure does. Way to go being consistent, consistent, Pete. Bits and Bobs? Bits and Bobs. All right. Did you, either of you have anything, or we're just going to do the listener email? Oh, let's do a listener email. All right. This one comes from Valerie, and the subject line is Very Fun Podcast. Being a longtime fan of Mad Men and having listened to, watched, or read most of the podcasts, YouTube, slash publication reviews of the show while, while it was in its first run on AMC, I recently discovered your podcast when I was looking for new takes on my favorite TV show. I have to say, yours is the first Mad Men podcast I found that's from a younger perspective. I've gone back to the beginning to listen to each of your episodes, and I'm enjoying them very much. Well, thank you very much. Thanks. It's so much. Yeah, this is so exciting. <laughs> it's so much fun to hear what surprises 
your host, Melissa, who is watching the show for the first time. I have nieces and nephews who are close to your ages, and yes, I realize not all of you are the same age, and I've always found people of your generation to be very earnest and, frankly, pretty worldly. Oh my god, that's so nice. (laughs) All of this is to let you know that there is at least one listener who appreciates your perspective on Mad Men. Keep up the good work. Thanks. Oh, thank you. And then it's what well, goes on a bit here. Um, or continues, I should say. If there's one thing you do that confuses me, it's starting each episode with time references for when a particular episode first aired. Some of the, quote, old Mad Men podcasts would routinely open a show by telling the listeners what else was going in the world at the time that the episode was set. This was This was useful, excuse me, as a basis for understanding more about what was happening in the character's world. However, because Mad Men is a period drama set in the 1960s, knowing what song topped the charts in a certain week in 19... or 1907... in 2007 seems irrelevant to studying the motives and actions of the characters on Mad Men. Since the show's pilot was written many years before it aired, it shouldn't be assumed that what the world was like in 2007 would color the history or culture of the 60s. I'd be interested in knowing your reasoning for including this information in an otherwise quite enjoyable podcast. Having listened through the time period and having lived through the time period in which Mad Men is set, I can tell you that is as authentic as any show I has ever watched. I have ever watched. Thank you again for this entertaining podcast. Well, thank you, Valerie, for your email and... I guess we, we can talk a little bit of why we start with the, the, the air date and the box office and the, the song charts there. And I mean, I'll, I'm talking now, so I'll start off. But simply when we, when we kind of started wanting to rewatch Mad Men in the case of two thirds of us or roping Melissa into watching it for the first time, something that we had talked about in our planning stages was kind of clocking who we were as individuals and consumers of TV and film and and media when we first watched the episode or, you know, who we were in then, and then seeing how, you know, that's kind of what where we got our name from in, in terms of Still Great Bob question mark, is does how do things kind of hold up? So we kind of we started there as kind of more of a, a check-in or like censoring thing for us, a fun thing for us as hosts to kind of put ourselves back in that kind of in this case of this episode, that October two thousand and nine nine headspace, and then clock how the show hasn't changed, but how we may have changed around the show. Yeah, I think that's I think that's it. Um I definitely get the emailer's point about um the grounding in the 2000s um, doesn't do anything to help explain character motivations um, and doesn't have any bearing on, you know, what was going on in the context of the 60s. But I th- it's, it's more about what was going on for the maybe the writers of the show, but even more importantly, like, the audience. Mm-hmm. Because I think what we're really trying to figure out is, like, as the audience, do we still receive Mad Men as like a great piece of media? And so we're comparing those reactions to that time period in the 2000s. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because I mean, we being our age, we aren't going to have um, a lot of firsthand uh, insight into how the show was um, into uh, the events that are being portrayed in the show, the attitudes or any of that kind of thing. 
the show itself is going to be the the story of the show is going to be told through the perspective of the time that it came out. We uh, Matt and I saw it in a certain particular time in our lives, and especially since it was such um, uh, a significant show in that period of television history in the in the. 2007 to 2009 and on era and made such an impression on prestige TV and the current golden age of TV. Um, It's just also a fun look back for us in the the television landscape over, you know, 12 to 15 years. The fact that it just is also a show that happens to be about a real time period (laughs) Mm, 45 years before is um almost negligible really almost yeah and i and I, th- I think yeah I, I think from my perspective that that context is it is important and it is something that interests and, and fascinates me and as the show progresses and we kind of get more towards kind of and we're, I mean, we're almost mid sixties now, but like that kind of late sixties, early seventies feel too. Like, and as, as the culture changes, as an America changes, I think Mad Men is as a, as a period piece free of some of the, the nostalgia for the period that you see in, in say something like um, American dreams, which, which aired on NBC a couple of years before, or one of my favorite movies in that thing you do, the the Tom Hanks um, directed picture from '96, I think it was. Um, I do think those those are there are valid, and there's there's something that we try and kind of feather in the show. I mean, admittedly, I do have a, a history degree, so I am I am interested into like some of those connections. But I think the bigger thing for me personally is kind of carrying out those those common themes and and we we definitely try to highlight some of that and kind of the the bits and bobs sections and kind of throughout our discussion but uh yeah no it's it's definitely a factor that's in play and i mean we we know we appreciate all of you listeners and we appreciate valerie for emailing and it's just we don't we don't want to don't want to go too long and at the end of the day that's when it kind of what it comes down to <laughs> right we we only have so much time but uh thanks again that was a that was a very great email and if you if you listeners want to be cool like valerie and, and tell us your your thoughts and comments um please send us an email at stillgreatbob at gmail.com we we love to hear from you like I literally fist pump every time I see that we've we've gotten an email. So thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, thanks, guys. Well, until next time, Melissa, where can we find more of you on the internet? Oh, you can find me on Twitter at Mellow Yellow, which is M-E-L-L-O-O Yellow. Or you can find me co-hosting the Wild Pretty Things podcast, where we will soon have out episodes uh, ranking TV and movies of 2020. And uh, there might be a familiar guest if you listen to this podcast. (laughs) Annie, what about you? Where can we find more of you on the internet? Uh, well, it turns out I've got another podcast. It is called The Daily Nightly. We are currently reading through all of Jane Austen's books with our good friend Jesse. Uh, right now we're getting stuck in into Mansfield Park, which is a journey, my friends. So uh, if you'd like to join along with us, please check it out. You can also find me on Instagram at Pop Artery, P-O-P-A-R-T-E-R-Y. Matt, where can people find you on those internets? 
You can find me on Twitter at at Mattyhue, M-A-T-T-Y-H-U-G-H. You can find all of us together on Twitter at at StillGreatPod. Please remember to rate, review, and if you haven't already, subscribe to us on the podcasting system of your choice. And as always, thank you to DJ Empirical for our very groovy theme song. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well... Bye. <laughs> Until next time, guys. Later days. Sarsgaard. Which is Sarsgaard. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sarsgaard. 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 <laughs>